Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Well, our sermon text this morning is in Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. While you're turning there, uh, I'd invite you to, to keep your Bible open as we go through the uh, passage this morning. This is a passage that is forgettable. And I mean that in the nicest way. When you read your Bible uh, through, or you're reading through Genesis, you probably skim past this one uh, on your way to more exciting stories. But you'll see today that it is worth our time. And so we're going we're gonna to be in Genesis 26, starting in verse 12. And I originally thought we'd get to verse 35, but those last two verses are I think belong in the next chapter. So we're going to be verse 12 through 33. This is the word of God. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Hazath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So... He made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. 
Lord, this is your word passed down from generation to generation to generation that we may grow in the knowledge of Christ and for all things in salvation. Thank you, Lord. Help us not to overlook passages like this. And Lord, by your Spirit's help, may we glean whatever wisdom you have for us in your word this morning. We ask for your help in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, 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 well. (laughs) There seems to be a little bit of a theme in this passage, doesn't there? We have seen, as we've been studying Genesis over the last long while, uh, the Lord has provided at wells before. He was with Hagar, Isaac's stepmom, at wells. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was found at a well. Jacob, Isaac's son, will find his wife at a well. Abraham has had previous disputes over a well. And on the one hand, we we should expect that wells would be important to a people who live in the desert. Right? Wells mean water. Water means survival. Survival means that, that story in Genesis that we've been reading, that story of the land and the seed and the promise, that story continues only if they survive. So, so wells, we would expect, might occasionally come up in Genesis. On the other hand, wells are so, so much a common, ordinary aspect of life that they don't really seem worth writing about. It's just a well. It's just, it's like plumbing for us. We don't write home about the plumbing. And yet, here we have lots of stories about plumbing. But beginning in Genesis, and here's, here's why, why this is important. Beginning in Genesis, and then going all throughout the Bible, all the way to Revelation, wells and springs, these hidden sources of fresh water, will come to be seen again and again and again as places of God's provision. This is true in Genesis. It's very dramatic in the book of Exodus when God provides fresh water from a rock for his people Israel. God gives them life in the midst of the wilderness. Think about that passage that that Mike read for us from Isaiah, Isaiah 41. When the poor and needy seek water and there's none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains or or wells in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. What are we seeing there? The Lord provides for his people. Psalm 107. Verse 35 to 38, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish, which very much sounds like Isaac's story. Again, it is the Lord in the Psalms, who's providing water for his people. Wells and springs in the Bible are so closely identified with God in his provision that the Lord himself actually refers to himself as the fountain of life for his people. He says in Jeremiah 2, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and hoed out cisterns, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so it's returning to the Lord, as he's telling us, that brings salvation. Same thing in Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And that imagery, wells of salvation, the source of life being in God himself, that imagery continues into the New Testament. Jesus said in John 4, and this is the the story of Jesus at the well in Samaria. Jesus says to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then remember that rock that I told you about in Exodus, that water is drawn from? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that rock was Christ. And Revelation 7.17 repeats this idea, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. So these wells are abundant in the Bible. And knowing all of that about wells throughout Scripture, and we've just, we're just skimming the surface there, But that leads us to see these repeated wells in chapter 26 and go, well, something's going on here. God is providing water for his people here, but it's it's a glimpse for us at something more to come. This is the first bubbling up from the spring that is to come as, as God shows his provision for his people. Well, in our passage this morning, there are four named wells, in addition to new, who knows how many wells were filled in and redug. But these, these wells from chapter 26 come in two groupings. And this is how we're going to kind of divide up the, the, the message this morning. There are the wells in the valley, Esek, Sitna, and Rehoboth. And then there is Beersheba, which is the well up in the hills. And those two groupings are divided by two themes. In the first, in the valley, you have opposition. And then up in the hills, you have peace. Down in the valley, Isaac is opposed by the Philistines. They're chasing him and taking his wells. And then up in Beersheba, they seek him out to make peace with him. So let's follow Isaac through the text this morning. Isaac is our example in the faith as we make our way with him from well to well to well to well, and we'll see what wisdom we can draw up. Okay, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And if you're new with us, this is all we do here. We, we open up the Bible to where we left off the week before, and we go into the next passage. So, so last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 26, there was a famine. Isaac was going to go to Egypt because of the famine, but the Lord appeared to him, said, stay in this land and I will be with you. And he promises him the blessings of Abraham. Isaac believes the Lord. He obeys the Lord. He stays in the land. There's some shenanigans. But then the story turns. And, and God begins to fulfill his promise of blessing to Isaac. And so we picked up there in verse 12, Isaac sowed in the land and he reaped a hundredfold and then the Lord blessed him. Verse 13 says he became rich more and more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and servants, very much like Abraham coming up out of Egypt. He's, He's rich. So much so that verse 14 says the Philistines envied him. And that sets up the 
the tone of the, of, of the passage, doesn't it? Okay, this is, everything that happens after this is going to be overshadowed by that envy, which, interestingly, in Hebrew, sounds like the word for Cain. Just interesting as we read Genesis. This isn't actually the first time, though, that, that something like this has happened to Isaac in Gerar, in the very same place. So when Isaac was a baby and his parents had lived, they were living there in Gerar, same place, they were, they were celebrating his, his, his weaning. Remember that big party that uh, Abraham threw for his son? There was this big party because here is finally the child of the promise. And at that party, Isaac's brother, Ishmael, envied him. And he teased him and he harassed him. And as a result, Ishmael and his mother were sent out of Gerar and into the wilderness. This time, Isaac, being harassed again, he's the one who's sent out of Gerard. You see that in verse 16? And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Okay, so that's kind of the, as we're reading the story and we read Genesis as true historical literature, we read it like we read a book, and we're picking up on some of these repeated themes and some flips that make us pay careful attention. So here's Isaac. He's got to leave Gerar now, although last time he got to stay, this time he has to leave. And to add to the difficulty, he's being sent out of Gerar into a wilderness where all the wells that his father Abraham had previously dug, they've been filled in. And that's what we learn in that setup verse in verse 15. See that in parentheses? Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Now, I just, let me just pause for a moment and acknowledge that that verse is kind of weird and out of place. Like, if you're reading this and you see that, you where did this come from? Where, why is it there? Now, the only reason I can think that Moses stuck verse 15 right there, right where it is, is because he's priming us as readers to pay careful attention to the wells that come up. From here on out. So pay attention to the wells. And that's what we're going to do. So, so just to get the picture. Isaac has loads and loads and loads of flocks and herds and servants. And all of those. That wealth requires water. The Lord has made him so fruitful that the Philistines are envious. And they're scared of Isaac's power. So they send him away into the waterless wilderness. Because he is mighty. And if you know the book of Exodus. You might see some parallels there, Exodus 1, the very beginning of Exodus, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And the king said to his people, almost the exact same thing that Abimelech says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Right? And so what happens in Exodus? Well, you know, Exodus, if you, if you don't know, you need to, to read it. But eventually, eventually the people are able to get out of Egypt. Uh, so, Isaac, um, so instead, instead of the Israelites in Exodus needing God's provision to escape Egypt, and that's what we see in the book of uh, Exodus, because there's, there's too much water, so God has to separate the water so they can get through. And here's Isaac. He must rely on God's provision to escape Gerar, and God's provision is going to be in the desert where there's not enough water. So it's kind of an interesting parallel there. So Isaac leaves Gerar, verse 17. He departed from there, encamped in the valley of Gerar, and settled there. In other words, he's going to try and make a living. He's encamping there. He's going to try to make a living in the valley. 
And following in his father's ways, he redigs all of the wells that his father had dug so that he can provide water for his many, many, many flocks and herds and people. Look at verse 18. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. That's an echo of verse 15. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. Now what we're meant to see here as readers is that the Lord is providing for Isaac in the same way that he provided for Abraham. There is continuity between Abraham's life and Isaac's life. This is the same line of blessing, so they rely on the same sources of life, the same water sources. And what Isaac is doing by redigging his dad's old wells is showing that he believes that the promises given to Abraham about the land now belong to him, particularly the land promise. God said in Genesis 26.3, which is the beginning of what we saw last week, God told Isaac's sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and I will bless you for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Now, if Isaac didn't believe that, just think about this. If he did not believe that the land was given in promised form to Abraham, he would not redig Abraham's wells and give them the same names that Abraham had given them. What he's doing is an act of faith in the Lord's promises. Digging dad's old wells is like saying, these are my father's wells. God gave them to him. They rightfully belong to him by promise. And I'm reestablishing them because God established his covenant with me that he had established with my father. You see what he's doing? And there's something that we as, as Christians, something about going to old wells like this, that we need to pay attention to here. So Isaac is awaiting the promise. And he, he's waiting as a sojourner in the land, waiting for the Lord's promises to be fulfilled. And we are very much like Isaac in that regard. We are awaiting Christ's return and the promise of the new creation and the resurrection. And like Isaac is following in the footsteps of Abraham, we are following Christians who have gone before us. And so there is wisdom and going to their wells. And I don't want to get too philosophical about this. But it's good to read their books. And to sing their songs. And to study and recite their creeds and confessions. And to learn from their discoveries and to learn from their mistakes. Especially when we're following faithful Christians. When a well has stood the test of time and is still producing you know that it is a well-dug well, right? And, it, and it's, it's tapped into a strong supply. Likewise, when a teaching or a practice in the church has stood the test of time because it is deeply rooted in the scriptures, it's good to go to that source again and again and again. That's why we don't invent new stuff here. We sing old songs. We're just reading from the scriptures. There's no gimmicks. There's not, not, nothing that we believe in our creativity we can offer to you that is better than what our forefathers have done before us. That's what we're doing. We're just going to old wells. And it is in this redigging of Abraham's old wells that Isaac finds uh, a new spring. Look at verse 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a, a well of spring water, literally it's a living water, 
The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. All right, so we look at that and we focus on what? He dug a well and these people took it from him, right? It's the action. We look at the verbs. But there's a verb that we overlook. He named it. I want you to think about that for a moment. Why would you name a well that you don't get to use? If, if, if Isaac is relinquishing this well to the herdsmen of Gerar, never to be seen or used again, why, is, why does he bother naming it? Why does he just move on? And there, there are two reasons I want you to see here that Isaac is naming these wells. And the text is very intent on making sure we see that Isaac is naming wells. He says it like five times. So we need to see that and pay attention. And there are two reasons Isaac's, Isaac names these wells. The first reason is this. Naming is an act of dominion. So in Genesis chapter 2, when God made Adam his, his, his vice regent, his ruler over the earth, and he set Adam in the garden and brought the animals to him, and, and Adam gave the animals their names, that was the only evidence that we had of Adam ruling over creation. He was naming stuff. It was an act of dominion. That's what Isaac is doing here. He's ruling over the land that God has promised him, and he's naming these wells. So it's an act of dominion. The second reason Isaac names the wells is because he believes that this land will one day belong to his descendants. In faith, Isaac names this well even as he's giving it over to the Philistines. And he does this twice. The first time is here in verse 20 and then again in verse 21. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also, so he called it Sitna. Now, the names are significant. Isek means contention. Sitna means hostility. So here's what's happening. In the midst of this trial, in the midst of this difficulty, Isaac's thinking is this. One day in the future, because I believe God and what he's told me, one day in the future, generations from now, these wells that my servants dug will one day belong to my offspring. And so, so even though these wells are being taken from me now because of opposition and hostility, I want the generations after me to know that the Lord overcame that opposition and that hostility in order to fulfill his promises. The names Esek and Sitna are both significant in that they are meant to be reminders in the future of past times of difficulty Difficulty in which God remained faithful. Do you see the significance of this? Isaac is naming wells that he can't use because he has the faith in God's promises that generations after him will need names for these wells, and Isaac wants those names to be names that remind them of the glory of God and the faithfulness of God. Remember, this book, Genesis, was not written by Isaac, it's written by Isaac's descendants. Right? It's written by Moses. So Moses and the descendants of Isaac in Israel are looking backwards here as they're reading. They're looking backwards, just like we are. They're looking backwards at Isaac's story and realizing, oh, that well that, that is down there on Judah's property, that Isaac dug that well. That's evidence that God was faithful to Isaac. And to his promises and to us. 
God was faithful to us, and these wells now belong to us. Isaac, for us Christians, Isaac is an example of what it looks like to show faith in the midst of trials. And I want you to just follow his footsteps here. The first thing he does is acknowledge that the trial is a trial. Right? He names the wells opposition and hostility. He's acknowledging this was a hard time. That's okay to admit. It's good to admit. Someone just took your well. There are going to be thirsty days ahead. That's hard. Admit it. It's okay. Christians don't have to to pretend that everything is great. It's awful when Christians do that. It's really annoying. Christians are right and obedient to God to grieve in times of difficulty. But don't stop there. Isaac didn't just sit there and feel sorry for himself and say hostility and opposition. He named the wells in hope that God would be faithful to his promises. We as Christians are to endure difficulty in the same way. We grieve, but we grieve in the hope of God's faithfulness. Notice what Isaac does not do here. Isaac does not look backward and start going down if only road. Do you know that road? If only? If only I had gone down to Egypt. If only I had not given or God had not given me all these flocks and herds to care for. All of this blessing is really just a burden to me now. If only I had gone north instead of going east through this valley. There is no good. There's no good to be had for a Christian to go down if only road. Because we know that God has been faithful in the past. We can, like Isaac, with confidence, look forward to God's faithfulness in the future. And that's what Isaac is doing. He's naming the present for its present difficulty, but in hope, looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. So Isaac leaves behind Esek, the well that he named, knowing that it will one day be his offsprings. And he leaves behind Sitna, the other well that he named, and only goes further and further inland. So if you're just thinking of a mental map, Gerar is actually really close to Gaza, which you've seen on a map a lot in the last couple months. He's going inland from there, from from the Mediterranean coast, further inland, which is further into the desert, further into the wilderness, and that's where Isaac is headed. And I want you to notice something else here as he is leaving behind these hard-earned wells. He doesn't fight. Did you notice that? He's not fighting with the Philistines. They command him to leave Gerar, so he leaves. They muscle him away from a well, and he complies. They move him away from another well, and he complies again. Some, some have observed that Isaac is being passive or cowardly or meek. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happened is Isaac is reflecting on his sins in Gerar, where he lied about his wife. And he understands now, he's learned from the Lord, that lying in order to help God's promises be fulfilled, to help God protect him, that was never actually helping anything. So in the same way, fighting the Philistines at every well would be similar. It would be seizing the land by his own strength, but he's not doing that. Instead, he's just moving on. 
Just as he has redug Abraham's wells, he's following Abraham's pattern of faith and trusting that one day the Lord will give him what he has promised. Isaac is, as we learn in the book of Hebrews, seeing the promises and greeting them from afar. And acknowledging he's a stranger, he's an exile on the earth. He desires a better country that is a heavenly one. So Isaac goes on trusting the Lord will provide for him even in the midst of persecution, and the Lord does provide. Look at verse 22. He moved on from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so we called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. This is sort of the end of the sandwich from, that began in verse 12. So in verse 12 you have fruitfulness, a hundredfold fruitfulness, and then you have in verse 22 fruitfulness coming again. Isaac was fruitful in Gerar, and now the opposition has quieted, and Isaac trusts that there will again be fruitfulness from God. And that is the happy ending conclusion of the story of the three wells. It's this story of ongoing faith in the midst of frustration. But it's not the end of the story, is it? You might think, as I did, as I'm reading Isaac's story, all right, now he's, count, he's come to a place where, where the, the Philistines are giving him room. It's, it's quiet there. There's a well there. The Lord is providing with it for him there. They're not quarreling with him. It's a broad land. Rehoboth literally means broad land. So there's plenty of, of land. And Isaac has just said he believes he's going to be fruitful in the land. So, so let's stay in the land, right? This seems like a good place. But Isaac doesn't do that. He doesn't stay there. He goes up from the valley of Gerar into the hills of the Negev to Beersheba. Why does he do that? Why did he leave Rehoboth? To answer that question, you need a little bit more background. Beersheba, where he's headed, has some history that we need to hearken back to. Beersheba got its name from Abraham back in Genesis chapter 21. And the story goes something like this. Abimelech, different Abimelech, same title, the king of Gerar and Phicol, different Phicol, but same title, the commander of the armies come from Gerar and they're looking for Abraham because they don't want trouble with him. Abraham has lied to them and caused lots of problems for their people and they don't want that to happen again. And, and so Abraham says, okay, well, if you want peace with me, if you want me to promise you that I'll never do anything like that to you again, we need to make a peace treaty. And in order for me to not do that to you, you have to promise that your guys who've been filling in my wells will stop. And, and, and you, can, you can assure me that this is my well here in Beersheba. So they, so they make a treaty. And Abraham takes seven ewe lambs and gives them to Abimelech as a sort of contract, agreeing that this well, the well in Beersheba, is Abraham's well. And that word Sheba means seven. So, seven ewe lambs stand for the Shiva in Beersheba. So, Abraham called that well Beersheba, or the well of the seven, because of the contract that he made there. Now, assuming that Isaac knows about this maybe 100-year-old agreement, I believe what's happening when he leaves Rehoboth for Beersheba is he's seeking out a place of refuge because he knows that in Beersheba there was a contract made. Right? Does that kind of make sense? I think he's still afraid of the guys that have been chasing him and filling in his wells. 
Even though the Lord has provided all this land for him, even though the Lord has provided water for him there, he's still not sleeping well. So Genesis 26, 23 says, from there he went up to Beersheba. And here's why I believe he was still afraid, because the Lord believes he was still afraid. Look at verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I'm the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. You see that in verse 24? Fear not. See, the Lord can see Isaac is afraid after being harassed and harassed and harassed by the Philistines. So his first words to him, his first word of encouragement to him, I'm God, same God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Fear not. This is, this is very similar to what happens in Genesis 15. All right, so here we are in Genesis 26. Isaac has been running away from bad guys, and the Lord comes to him in the night and says, fear not. In Genesis 15, after Abraham had to deal with the evil kings of the east, he went up to Dan, he rescues Lot, he returns to the land of promise, and there the Lord appears to him in the night, and the first thing the Lord says to Abraham in Genesis 15 is, fear not. There's something I want you to see about the Lord here. Even when you are trusting in the Lord, even when you are believing his promises, when you know as Christians that all things are working out for your good, right? Romans 8, 28. All things are working out for your good and God's glory. You know that Christ is returning. You know that he's going to bring about the resurrection and the judgment. You know he's going to make all things new and there's never going to be a tear in anyone's eye ever again after that. Even knowing all of those things, as you do and as you trust, sometimes you're still afraid. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Abraham was afraid after defeating a massive army in Genesis chapter 14. Isaac is afraid after repeated disputes over water, and yet the Lord provides for him and provides for him and provides for him, and yet he's, he's still afraid. Your fear does not negate your faith. Sometimes fear is sin. Sometimes it is. And sometimes what we do with fear leads to sin. But sometimes fear is just a part of your human frailty. You're weak. I'm weak. We are creatures. We are made of dust. We're not God. We are weak and frail, and sometimes when we become aware of our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, sometimes that brings us to the type of believing fear that Isaac is experiencing here. And the encouragement here in the text is that God sees and knows your fear. Look, it's not like he looks at Isaac and says, well, he's afraid, I can't work with that. Instead, the Lord is as the Psalms speak of him, Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The Lord doesn't treat you like a God. He treats you as a creature made of dust. He has compassion toward you. He knows when you're afraid. 
And the Lord knows that sometimes after being harassed for a really long time, eventually we're going to end up tired and afraid and looking for refuge. And so that's what the Lord brings to Isaac. Look at the rest of the passage. Fear not. Look what he tells him immediately after that. I'm with you. I'm here. And I will bless you. The blessing is not over. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. What do we see? We see here that true refuge is found in the Lord himself. And so the Lord gives Isaac his presence. I am with you. Not will be. I am with you. Isaac has returned to the last place he knew where peace with the Philistines had been made. And what does he find there? He finds an even greater peace, the presence of God. But God's presence alone is not always reassuring, is it? Ask Sodom. God was present with Sodom. He was there in Sodom, and he called down judgment. So it's not just God's presence that is a source of comfort. God's comfort comes in his presence with his promises. So refuge is found in the promises of God, which is also what the Lord brings to Isaac. We need to know the promises of God. And so the Lord is reiterating his promises to Isaac. I will bless you and multiply your offspring. It's not over. Beginning of chapter 26, he told him all these things. And he's telling him again, it's not over. Just because all of these wells have been filled in, and it seems like you're not getting the land right now, it's not over. I'm still here. I'm still going to be faithful to my promises. Well, in response to God revealing himself to be uniquely present in that place with Isaac, Isaac does three things. Look at verse 25. One, he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. There's number two. And three, he pitched his tent there. Now that word that we translate as altar literally means a place of sacrifice. So when you look at it in in the Hebrew, it's just place and sacrifice mashed together. It's a place of sacrifice or slaughter. We think of it, we don't think of it that way because we don't make a lot of sacrifices. So we think of an altar and we think, oh, like that, like an altar. Or a pile of rocks, the pile of rocks that you find in the Old Testament. But those piles of rocks were meant to hold up sacrifices, So when it says that the Lord built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord, what Moses is is saying is that Isaac made sacrifices on the altar and he worshiped the Lord. So the Lord has shown him his presence with him and Isaac has realized, I need to make sacrifices because this is what we do in order to be in the presence of God, which is key for understanding Christianity. Christ is our sacrifice. Then what it says, he pitched his tent That is to say, he set up camp in the place where God appeared. So having been reminded of God's presence and his blessings, Isaac takes solace. This is a place of peace. This is a place of God's protection. And I I can finally set up camp again. Because the last time he set up camp was, was down in the valley. And then it was run, 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 run after that. And there, verse 25 says, there Isaac's servants begin digging a well. That's another indication that this is, Isaac is going to make this place a home. He's going to get water and provide there. 
Isaac believes, digging a well means Isaac believes the Lord will provide in this place. Now what's interesting is between the beginning to dig and the discovery of water, something interesting happens. And this is actually the point of this section, the, the climax of what happens in Beersheba. So, so Isaac is there worshiping in this place of refuge, and he looks out, and who should he see coming sauntering up the hill but Abimelech the king, five called the commander of the armies, and a new guy, Ahazaath, whose name means advisor. And from what we can tell from ancient documents, that word Ahazaath might actually be the title of the guy whose job it is to manage land use for the king. So this is like code enforcement. This isn't good. All three branches of the Philistine government that can cause Isaac the biggest headache are now approaching Isaac. And Isaac isn't happy. He's less than pleased to see them because he's been chased by their minions for the last who knows how long, and he's finally at peace. He's nervous. He's rightfully nervous. And he's a little bit angry. Do you see the edge in his voice? Why have you come to me? seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. Now, I have to imagine that his language was saltier than what Moses recorded for us. But either way, the point has been made. I am not happy to see you. But look at their response. It is ironic. Verse 28, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. The Lord told Isaac at the beginning of chapter 26, I will be with you. He told him in, in just a couple verses ago, I am with you, and others are seeing it too. We see plainly the Lord has been with you. Now, how do these guys know that the Lord has been with Isaac? Because the Lord has been providing for Isaac. As he's wandered his way through the desert and he's survived and all of his flocks and herds and servants have survived, he is, he's like nothing. The Lord has been his provider in the midst of difficulty and that has become evident to these Gentiles. So evident that they have begun to fear the Lord because of Isaac. And I'll just say, isn't that our desire as Christians? That as we follow Christ... Others would see the presence of Christ with us, even when we are enduring difficulty. And if you, don't, if you don't think people notice, they do. People notice. They're watching. They notice when you gossip and complain and grumble. You say, well, they're just like me. But they also notice when you're thankful and patient and self-controlled and joyful. Just as the Philistines see the gifts that the Lord has provided for Isaac, non-Christians see the gifts that the same Lord provides for you in Christ through the Spirit. So let God's gifts to you be visible. Isaac could not hide his. You can hide yours, but don't. Let God's gifts to you be visible to the world so that your witness to God's salvation would be credible to unbelievers. Because God's gifts to you are the witness. They are the sign to unbelievers. The unbelieving Philistines can see plainly that the Lord, Yahweh, he uses the Lord's name here. They can see that the, the one true and living God, the creator of the universe, is really with Isaac. But they're not just coming in to tell him that to be an encouragement to him. Are they? 
Because in their minds, if Isaac is the man through whom the Lord, Yahweh, is working, they don't want to get on his bad side. They want peace with the Lord, but they know that only comes through peace with Isaac, the Lord's chosen ambassador. So they continue. We see that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let's make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we've not touched you. Right, they didn't touch him. But they harassed him. We have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, not really, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So, so, so look what's happening here. The Gentiles want a covenant of peace, and so Isaac agrees to it. Verses 30 and 31, so he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they parted from him in peace. Now, this is good for Isaac. Because Isaac can now rest easy because God has brought peace with those who were contending with him. This is good for Isaac. He's, he's in, the, in the promised land or the land that will be the promised land. And the Lord is present with him. He's worshiping the Lord there. He's finally at peace with the Gentiles. So this is, this is good for Isaac. He can finally get a good night's sleep. But just the same, and perhaps more importantly to us, you and me, the Gentiles, the Philistines, they can rest easy because they are assured Isaac's not going to come after them in the name of the Lord. Where there was once hostility between Jews and Gentiles, there is now peace. Are you seeing that? Where there was hostility between Jews and Gentiles, there is now peace. The offspring of Abraham is, in a very small way, blessing the nations. And just as the wells of this story are a preview of God's provision for us in Christ, this covenant that Isaac makes with the Gentiles is a preview of what is to come for us in Christ. Let me just show you the pattern here. There is hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and there are even wells to prove it with names. And then the partial fulfillment of the promises of God comes, the presence of God comes, a sacrifice is made, and then there's partial peace with the Gentiles. This is the same pattern that we see unfolding in the New Testament, only it's fuller for us. There's hostility between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles own the land. They're oppressing the Jews. The promise of God is fulfilled. The Messiah arrives. Messiah is the presence of God. A sacrifice is made. It's Christ himself. The final sacrifice and the hostility between Jews and Gentiles is broken down. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Ephesians 2.11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Now remember, Philistines were uncircumcised, so speaking of Philistine, uncircumcised people. You Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Just as we sang and great is thy faithfulness. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility.
God has reconciled us through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And wouldn't you know it, in Genesis, as soon as the Philistines walk away in peace, the servants of Isaac come running up to him and say, we found water. Isn't it interesting that that's what concludes the story? This, 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 this is the conclusion of the story of God's provision and peace with the Gentiles. The blessing of water from God comes after the covenant with the Gentiles is made. Look how Moses puts it in verse 32. He makes a connection to the events. He says, that same day, so you have the covenant with the Gentiles, the oath with the Gentiles is made, and that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said, we found water. And so echoing what he did in the valley, Isaac, in verse 33, names the well with the name that his father had given it. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And we can say that still. There's still a Beersheba in, in that land today. Still called the same name. So Isaac gives this well the same name that Abraham had given it as a reminder that the Lord has provided peace with the Gentiles for Isaac just as he did with Abraham. The well of the oath for Abraham is also the well of the oath, Beersheba, for Isaac. God provides water then as a seal on the promise. It's, it's a seal on the promise of blessing. So whenever Isaac returns to that well, he's going to look back and say, the Lord provided for my father. The Lord provided for me. The Lord protected my father at Beersheba, and the Lord protected me. The Lord was faithful to my father, and the Lord was faithful to me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so it is with you and me. As we read this book and we look back at the Lord's provision to his people throughout the ages, as we observe God's faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac, and we'll see it to Jacob and the rest of Israel, we can know and we can trust that the Lord has been faithful to us, just as he was faithful to them. He's provided for us in Christ, the well of living water. And he has sealed us with his spirit, whom he has poured out on us and into us. And so we have just as much reason, more reason even, than Isaac did that day for Thanksgiving. So this Thanksgiving, this Thursday, my, this is my favorite holiday, just so you know. This Thanksgiving, when you look back at the previous year, and you celebrate the Lord's provision, here's what I want you to do. You have some homework this week. Name the events to one another at your table. Name those events where the Lord has brought you through difficulty. Name those wells. Name Isaac and Sitna. Name them. And name those events where he has provided for you abundantly, like Beersheba. And then thank him and feast and praise the name of the Lord with joy. Will you do that with me this week? I'll be somewhere else. But you do that at your table, and I'll do that at my table. We'll praise the name of the Lord. This is a story about God's provision. What a good story on Thanksgiving week. Amen. Let's thank him.